Here's a quiz question for you. Do you know which literary work is the most quoted in the English language? Find out the answer to that and more on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Give up? The answer, of course, is Hamlet. Shakespeare's Hamlet is one of the most influential and important works of literature and has inspired ballets, orchestral works, choral works, and more than one opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, lecturer Michael Bolton tackles the significant history of this masterwork and the Met's inspiring new production of this brand new opera by composer Brett Dean. We are here to talk about Hamlet. Hamlet is part of our popular culture. We revisit these stories in theater with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, at the movies with Fanny and Alexander, and even Nightmare on Elm Street, on television shows beyond PBS. It's been on The Simpsons to Star Trek, and then it's been in books and commercials and radio plays and operas, of course. The words of Hamlet stay with us. These are all phrases that come from Hamlet. To thine own self be true, to be or not to be, of course, to the manner born, brevity is the soul of wit, the lady doth protest too much, and that's just some of them. So it's a, it's a treasure trove of so many things that part of our culture. And all of this to say, we all have our conceptions of what Hamlet is, whether it's uh, we've been brought up on the Laurence Olivier version, or the John Gielgud, or you know, um, uh, Mel Gibson, or uh, who was the other one? Kenneth Branagh, who's more of my generation, perhaps. But if we come in expecting to hear and see Shakespeare, we may be disappointed because ultimately the play, which has over 4,000 lines, had to be cut in order to become a manageable opera. So inevitably, your favorite scene, your favorite character, your favorite moment may have been cut. So this Hamlet is very much a piece of music theater. Uh, the composer Breen, uh, Brett Dean, librettist Matthew Jocelyn, and director Neil Armfield a stunning cast of brilliant actors who happen to be musicians and sing, headed by Alan Clayton, who gives one of the most virtuosic performances that you may ever see on the opera stage. It is very much a, a theatrical journey through music, and, you know, Wagner might have even called it a Gesamtkunstwerk. It is a marriage of text, music, staging, performances, and all of it coalescing together. This does what opera is supposed to do. It uses music to tell us more about the characters and their, emo and their emotions. And musically, it's unlike any other opera you have ever seen because it takes pieces like aluminum foil and uses it in the orchestra pit. I don't really know where that happens, but there are wondrous sounds that will be coming from the orchestra pit that we're just not ready for or used to. But there's a lot to digest with any new piece that's unfamiliar to us. Think about the first time you heard a Benjamin Britten opera, but as his music has become more everyday, we're more attuned to how he writes. Well, you're coming into a Brett Dean opera for the first time, you have to get acquainted with, like I said, his musical vernacular, 
Uh, and it is a very dense and fascinating score. You have to take in the staging. Uh, you have to find ways to, uh, to release yourself from the Met titles to appreciate what's happening on stage. I know I get stuck in that. And really become involved and invested in this piece. I'll talk now about the composer, Brett Dean. He was um, born in Brisbane, Australia in 1961, started studying violin at the age of eight, ends up switching to viola, and then is a member of the Berlin Philharmonic between 19, 1985 and 1999. In 2000, he breaks out, becomes a freelancer, starts composing, and he concentrates on experimental film, radio projects, and improvisational work. We don't really hear a lot of composers who deal with improvisation, so that's kind of exciting. But he has a busy career as a violist, as a conductor, and as a composer. And our librettist, Matthew Jocelyn, born in 1958, he's Canadian. Uh, I watched an interview where the two of them joked that they had gotten a commission from a British company, and both of them being an Australian and a Canadian. How did the, uh, the British feel about that, basically? But he's also a theater and opera director. He's an arts administrator a producer, an advocate, and an opera librettist and translator. So he's bringing a very different and unique uh, and, and informed skill set into writing a libretto. Some of the operas that he's directed have been Poulenc's La Voix Humaine, Carmen, Die Frau in Schatten, La Clemenza di Tito. So really fascinating and interesting subject matters and topics. He's bringing all of that skill set to this work. Well, the commission came from Glyndebourne, and the general director at the time contacted Brett Dean about writing an opera after seeing Dean's first opera, Bliss, in 2010. And after a year of looking at various materials, what, you know, what are you going to write an opera about? Well, they contact, first the idea of Hamlet came up. And you can imagine, as your second opera, being somewhat intimidated <laughs> by a subject like Hamlet. Well, Dean's wife, who is a visual artist, had just done this series of works based on Hamlet, so he felt maybe less intimidated, like, like, well, if she can do it in her medium, well, maybe this is something that I can explore too. And after meeting with director Neil Armfield, uh, Armfield ends up recommending Matthew Jocelyn for the librettist, and that's how the whole team comes together. Now, with this piece, there are significant options for Hamlet itself. While we may have studied it, there's still no definitive version. There are three different, primarily three different versions of the, of the uh, script that have been published at various times. In this case, it's uh, 1603, 1604, and 1623 that these different versions, and ultimately the entire standard version, if you want to call it that, has 29,551 words. So if we set the entire thing, it would be way longer than the ring cycle, right? So, Rethinking about this needed to be done, and Jocelyn thought that with these various versions and giving himself the liberty, it almost gave him the liberty uh, to kind of rethink and recreate what he thought this opera could be. Madness is nothing new to the opera stage. Madness in opera goes as far back as Handel's opera Hercules, and probably even before then, but I also think of Madness as being maybe somewhat dissonant. But as it's been a season of madness at the Met. You know, we've had all of these operas in this year that have produced some sort of mad scene. And let's take a, a teeny tiny brief look and listen to how some of these composers dealt with madness.
if madness is like that, sign me up. Yeah. It sounds very fun, right? And that's actually, that's Nadine Sierra. To me, she sounds a lot like Beverly Sills in that clip, and, but that's from a new recording. So that's 1833 with Boris in 1872. But it's, it's very big, it's very, it's um, almost like Sprech Gazang, where he's really sort of emoting and, and, and just tearing into the text. And then with Rake's Progress, which opens, in, and, and that was Rene Papa, and then in the Rake's Progress from 1951, let's hear Paul Groves sing in a performance from the Met. The So we get a little bit of everything. Beautiful singing, um, speaking, yelling, an investment where almost the character doesn't know where he is at any given time. But we're here to talk about Hamlet. So I want to play the very first scene from Dean's Hamlet from the original production or the world premiere production in, in 2017. Um, the play, if you recall, opens with several soldiers on a parapet. They're talking about this ghost that happens to show up every couple of nights. And um, that's how we start our, our play. Let's see where the opera starts. Oh, my dear, 
Powerful stuff, right? What do we notice right off the bat? The music is filled with this anxiousness and might even seem a little scary. We have this pedal tone in the orchestra, this throbbing round, round tone. It's actually a tam-tam or a gong with a rubber ball rolled around in it that's then amplified and the pitch is dropped. And it's, it, it overwhelms the entire theater, having this very low moan-like sound. And then we have this screeching of uh, a string instrument of some sort. We have an invisible chorus singing this text of Dust, Noble Dust, which actually comes from act, um, the second scene of the first act, and it's a Hamlet speech, but he's almost like he's hearing it in his head. I mentioned that the play starts with soldiers. There's no soldiers, it's just Hamlet. And in this case, it's Alan Clayton who sings the role of Hamlet. And um, he's not on the parapet. He starts with, or not to be, or not to be. It's almost like a foreshadowing of what's going to happen with the whole, with the entire uh, opera. And then, um, and Hamlet is clearly off from the start. But we have this definite sound world of madness. Uh, the opening scene itself is, once we get past this, it's big and brash and cacophonous and unsettling. And it makes you uncomfortable because it's just not settled. You know, we clearly get the sense of this madness that is pervasive of almost the entire um, court, as it were. And throughout this work, we'll hear what's called extended vocal technique. Unusual demands on the vocal range, use of vocalizations that are not typical of opera, uh, speaking, using sprechgesang, falsetto, vocal fry, whistling, even growling. And we'll have an example of that in the video excerpts as well. Uh, I find <coughs> the vocal lines kind of unsettled, uh, sort of short duration, long duration. They don't seem to work sometimes together, again, conveying that kind of madness. I feel like a lot of times there's people talking at each other rather than talking to each other. Um, and then Dean also uses coloratura very inter interestingly, not in a bel canto way at all. Again, more as sort of like word coloring, word painting, things like that. Um, he wants to think of the experience as a theater of sound, almost like having surround sound. So his pieces are very orchestrally uh, rich in color and some of, of the um, uh, electrified elements, amplified elements, do have that, literally have a surround sound effect, but then also in the piece he has uh, instrumentalists posed at various parts within the theater, again, to give a very sort of surround sound kind of feel to it. I mentioned the choir. There is an eight-voice choir that is in the pit that acts as sort of an instrumental accompaniment or part of the instrumental fabric of, of the sound world that he's creating. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's an interesting take on all of this. So um, I talked about that. Hamlet's plot in a nutshell, a wrong occurs and the hero seeks revenge to make it right. In the process, everyone is destroyed. There are more details, we'll get into some of those. But <clears throat> there are five major characters. We have Claudius, who is Hamlet's uncle. Uh, he's taken the throne after killing Hamlet's, King Hamlet, and then tries to have Prince Hamlet murdered. Uh, Hamlet's mother, Gertrude, the Queen of Denmark, she drinks a cup of poison that is uh, meant for Hamlet, and she dies. That's in th at the end. Hamlet, of course, is our, is our titular hero. He's the son of King Hamlet and Gertrude. He kills Claudius to avenge his father's death and is mentally unstable. Ophelia is his love interest, and that, that love is reciprocated initially. Uh, she commits suicide after the death of her father, 
and she also in this in this uh, piece is also staged as being somewhat unstable. And then Ophelia, who is um, Ophelia's father, is Polonius. Uh, Hamlet stabs him uh, after he is spying on them, and sort of an, an accidental stabbing, if you will. Um, one honorable mention goes to the ghost of Hamlet, uh, ha the ghost of Hamlet's father. In this case, it's sung by John Relier. This character ends up doing three roles, uh, the gravedigger and the king in the meta play. So you'll see this performer multiple times throughout the, throughout the performance. Um, we will say that uh, John Relier, who's singing it, uh, I learned that he only got the score three weeks before rehearsal started. So I'm sure it was because another singer had to withdraw. And I can't imagine, luckily it's a relatively short role but it's still ridiculously complicated music. There are five scenes I want to show you. The entrance of the ghost of the, ghost of the king, uh, the ghost of Hamlet's father, the introduction of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh, the meta play, Ophelia's mad scene, and then a little bit of the final duel. What I find so rich in each of these scenes is that it gives us, it shows us how Dean is using the orchestra, how he's setting the, the, the text vocally, and uh, introduces us to the work itself. All right, so we have the entrance of the ghost. Plot-wise, King Hamlet has been murdered. Gertrude, his wife, marries his brother, Claudius. The ghost then visits Hamlet, reveals that he has been murdered, and then seeks revenge through the Prince, Ham Prince Hamlet. The music, I find, is very frightening and paired with this wailing that comes from this offstage chorus in the pit. The ghost sings in low moans, sliding to and from notes to make him sound more otherworldly and certainly scarier. Uh, it's performed by veteran bass John Tomlinson, who sings the ghost from the original production.
It's, it's so spooky in its own way, and even his first lines of Mark Me, it, it's not a sustained note, it's falling into the underworld almost. Mark Me. Very creepy. And um, so the next scene is the entrance of uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Uh, it's a little bit of a comic scene, comic with maybe a lowercase c. Um, they are, uh, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are the childhood friends of Hamlet. They have been summoned to Elsinore uh, because uh, the uh, Gertrude and Claudius are trying to find out why Hamlet is mad. And interestingly, uh, Dean sets them both as countertenors. And what I find super interesting in this scene is what we get a sense of personal interactions and understanding of, of political hierarchy, if you will. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern they are just there to please. You know, uh, they're almost tripping over each other to see who can please the royalty more than the other. And then Gertrude almost only repeats what the king has said. So she doesn't have original thoughts, she just goes along with whatever her husband wants publicly. So I find that interesting. Um, and then we have the introduction of Polonius. Polonius uh, is Claudius's, Claudius's counselor, and uh, belying that brevity is the soul of wit, he talks a lot. And even finds ways to intersperse coloratura melismas just to kind of either draw attention to himself or extend what he's saying because he loves the sound of his own voice. Who's to say? But um, it's an interesting uh, little moment as we get introduced to these characters a little bit more. Shall be 
Postulate what majesty should be, what beauty is, why day is day, night is night, and time, where nothing but to waste night, day, and time, since brevity be the soul of wit and tediousness for limbs and parishes, I will be brief. And then when we get to this moment, the acting is just so good. All right, um, next I want to show you the, the, the scene, the play within a play, the meta play. Uh, before this, Polonius's daughter Ophelia has been in a loving relationship with Hamlet. Uh, Polonius and Claudius also try to use her to get to the root of Hamlet's madness. And Hamlet becomes suspicious of Ophelia, so he breaks off their relationship. And then this troop of players comes to Elsinore, and Hamlet has them reenact Claudius's murder of the king in order to see how the king will react. And uh, the primary instruments in this scene are an accordion and a drum on stage. And I'm very curious to see what that sounds like in the theater, because I have no idea how loud an accordion is. Dramatically, Hamlet is the puppeteer of everything that's happening with all of this. And as the, uh, the players pantomime their scene, um, Hamlet, the character, the singer, is asked to sing with irony. Uh, at end, the very end of the scene has a very high tessitura where he's staying on high A's and B flats. So it becomes almost like a, an heroic sing for him. And then the chorus at the very end of the scene has very complicated and very high music as well. The Claudius and Gertrude will be in this evening's performance. Of course, Alan Clayton will be in this performance uh, tonight as well.
Is the image of a man. Dann in Fehler! Consago is the king's name. His wife, Baptista. It is a knavish piece of work, father. But what of that? we have this wonderful sense of color and drama that he's bringing with this very unusual choice of an accordion for this scene because it, 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 it has this creepy sound. And I was watching an interview with the accordion player. He's a classical accordionist. Um, I don't know of any other operas that have an accordion in them. Um, but he said there's so many, you, you think of French or, or France and Paris and whatnot and, and typical accordion things, but he's like, there's so much more that this instrument can offer, including making these very sort of deep and hollow and, and spooky sounds. And he was very excited about being able to work on this. And then also being on stage, it all has to be memorized as well. I, and I'm super curious as to how the singers managed uh, working with an accordion on stage and what uh, audibility was like and things like that. But that's more of a technical standpoint for, for me. So after the meta play, um, uh, Hamlet goes and confronts um, his mother Gertrude about her relationship with Claudius. And Polonius is there behind a rack of clothing. Polonius makes noise. 
Hamlet thinks it's Claudius, he goes and kills or stabs into the clothing and out pops uh, a dying Polonius. Um, and that's how the first act ends. So the first act of the opera is acts one, two, and three of the play. Um, and, and when we get to the beginning of the second act, we have had Laertes, Polonius' son, returning to Elsinore to avenge his father's death. Claudius works with Laertes to come up with a plot to get rid of Hamlet. And then Ophelia shows up. She has gone mad, one, because of her father's death, two, because of uh, Hamlet's rejection of her. And vocally, it's this extraordinary um, amalgamation of different kinds of mad scenes. There's beautiful long extended lines, there's staccato notes, there's high notes that come out of nowhere, um, but don't look for that cadential trill leading up to the E flat, um, like we get in Lucia or, or Puritani. Um, and even in this scene, she has this extended vocal technique where she's just pounding her chest in an expression, but that descends into some growls and some just guttural noises that she makes, uh, again, to show that. And then, but this is uh, Barbara Hannigan. I loved you not.
but it's fascinating to look at. You know, it's funny. I was, I was think my grandmother had Alzheimer's, and, um, and uh, while she didn't do some of the stuff, it reminded me of some of her behaviors as she got as the disease progressed a little bit more, um, the repetitiveness and things like that. So it's, it's very interesting to see this take on madness. The one last piece I wanted to play with you, or, or show to you, show you was this final duel. Um, grammatically, Ophelia has uh, committed suicide. She's drowned in the, in the stream nearby. Laertes' thirst for revenge is heightened because of all of this. He definitely wants to uh, make sure that Hamlet is exterminated. Um, Laertes and Hamlet meet before the entire court for this duel that has been staged. Laertes, his, the tip of, of the sword he'll be using has been poisoned. Meanwhile, Claudius puts poison into a wine glass that Hamlet will drink. And um, <laughs> as the synopsis on the med website says, many deaths ensue. So it's an exhilarating, I've, I, I love this scene. I feel like it, it, it feels like you're watching a movie because you have this incredible orchestration happening on top of this, this play that happens to be sung, being performed for us. And um, again, this wonderfully intricate music, incredible choreography, uh, but um, we'll start at the beginning of the fight up until when Gertrude takes the cup and takes a drink out of it. And you, you judges, bear a wary eye. This pearl is thine, richer than that which four successive kings in Denmark's crown have worn. Here's to my hand. Give him the cup. I'll pay this part first. I'll drink the cup. Come, come, then. Do 
is too late. I dare not drink yet, madam, by and by. So I'm friends with Bill Burton, whom I've worked with a bunch of times. He's playing Polonius. And I asked him if he would have time to talk about this show. And one of the things we talked about was the makeup. Uh, but first, I asked him about the directorial process. I'm like, well, how is Neil Armfield really creating or allowing you to create characters, or what is his direction been as far as this, again, this dysfunctional family? And he said he wanted to make it as, he wanted to give the singers as much liberty as possible to create their own interpretations and find these interpretations within the rehearsal process, especially given how challenging the music is. And uh, he said it was a very supportive and very sort of exciting uh, process to go through. And, and when I asked him, though, about the makeup, I said, you know, is it, it supposed to be ghostly? Is, you know, what is the significance? And he said, uh, it really, it, it was almost sort of practical in that it was meant to help the uh, facial expressions appear bigger on in the house, um, which didn't necessarily make sense to me, I'll be honest. Um, so we'll see how that works. So, but that, that's what he shared with me. Um, but uh, he said what was what was interesting was that, because I mentioned to him about how, uh, the, how no one was looking at the conductor in the video from Glyndebourne, he said that this process has, it's the kind of music where you have, to, you have to commit to it. You have to internalize every nanosecond of it. Because one of the real challenges, he said, was that uh, Brett Dean really thinks of singers like instrumentalists. So there are, there are various, you know, moments in the score where he's constantly changing uh, uh, meter and you can't sit there and, you know, okay, is this 3-4, is this 12-6, is this, you know, because you'll just get lost in the math of it all. So you really have to internalize how this just sounds. And, um, but he said, once you get it, <laughs> you're never going to forget it. That was Guild lecturer Michael Bolton discussing the history and music of Brett Dean's operatic version of Hamlet. The production will be seen live in HD in cinemas worldwide on Saturday, June 4, 2022. For more information, visit metopera.org and be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on your favorite social media platform to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Elspeth Davis, and thank you for listening.